0: Hi, I'm Claire Mitchell, QC. Welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. I'm a lawyer who specialises in miscarriage of justice cases, and we're bringing you this podcast because we want to tell you about the women who were accused, prosecuted, convicted, and ultimately executed as witches in Scotland. I'm Zoe Vendetotsy
1: and I'm a writer who's always had an interest in the witches and I feel that this dark mark against
0: Scotland needs a reckoning. The campaign Witches of Scotland wants three things. Firstly, a pardon for all those convicted of witchcraft. Secondly, an apology for all those who were accused as witches. And finally, a national monument in recognition of all those who are affected by this terrible miscarriage of justice. Over the
1: forthcoming weeks, we'll be talking to a whole host of experts about the history and the modern day connections to the Witches of Scotland.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Witches of Scotland. We've got a great episode for you today. We're going to go to Skye to hear about a woman who was killed as a witch. And we're also going to go to Germany to hear about, first of all, someone who is on the same path as us, who's trying to get a pardon for a woman, and also how he, in fact, follows in the footsteps of someone who, at the time of the witchcraft trials, was trying to get these convictions overturned. But first of all, as ever, we start with naming some of the women in Scotland who were accused and killed as witches. Zoe, who do we have for us today? Well, first of
1: all, we've got one of the Witches of Liberton from 1661. What we thought we'd do today is read her confession, which was taken at the time. So this was for a woman called Margaret Bryson. Now, bear with, because we are reading this from the old, I don't know, is, is it Scots? Old, it's not
0: old English,
1: but it's definitely
0: not standard English as we would recognise it today. What I think is, is Scots as it was written at the time, but it doesn't appear to be that there were any correct way of writing things. It just sounds like it was written as it was said. So you get lots of different spellings depending on people's accent, I suppose. Which is
1: okay, because as a secondary English teacher, I'm quite used to that. (laughs) (laughs) Right, so the lady that we're going to look at first then is Margaret Bryson. So I'm just going to read from her confessions. it says, Margaret Bryson confesseth about Whitsunday by gain a year, she being in a great agony and grief at her husband about 10 o'clock at night for selling of ain cow. She cried out and bade either God or the devil come and tack her from them and did run out to the house wall and the night to have felled herself. And her daughters came forth and took her in again and she went to her bed but could get no rest and was within an hour after she'd lain down and came to the live house door where the devil did appear to her and said he should take her away soul and body, and caused her to put her hands on the head, the other on her foot, and renounce her baptism to him, and she should want nothing, and she did so, and promised to be his servant. The devil nipped her on the shoulder, where she thought she was pricked. So that's all that it says about her. And Claire, you were saying to me that it was quite common that this kind of story of renouncing your baptism kind of did the rounds and then women were quite familiar with what that's what they would say, presumably after they'd been sleep deprived and or physically tortured, they would then just say something along these lines just to get it over with.
0: Yeah, I mean, the renouncing of the baptism was important from the accuser's point of view because what it was, was you were turning away from God and what was godly and what had been promised by your baptism that you were given to him and that you were being given to another And what's interesting is the reference to touching on her head and her foot and renouncing her baptism appeared to be the way that people spoke about the renouncing. And time and time again, we see women saying, he touched me on the head and on my foot and renounced it. And what it would appear to happen is, of course, people confess to this. Other women hear that that's how their baptism is renounced. And then when they are being tortured, they just repeat the same thing. It appears that that was the case just shows you how odd situation that people were forced into to make up things and obviously all this woman could think of was that she had her husband had sold the cow and she mm. had cursed him for it by saying yeah. their god or the, the devil take you it's also really strange like it
1: can't can't be tremendously easy to put your hand on your head and one of your feet at the same time to announce the baptism like it's a bit it's quite odd, that, I think.
0: Well, I don't know whether the devil took a huge form or whatever,
1: but that was that was what he was it, saying. To have done. Do you think that then that's the devil, sorry, that touches the hand and the head? Or do you think that it's the woman or the person that's been executed when they're making their confession, that it's them that's supposed to put their hand on their head and their foot, the sole of their foot at the same
0: time? Well, and this one said he caused her, put her hands on the head. That's not. It's not as straightforward. Well, if, if it's her herself that's doing it, is to put one hand on her head and one hand on her foot, that would be easy. But the sole of your foot, though, I know that this sounds really persnickety on my part,
1: right? But if you're standing up, because you're presumably not going to take a seat when you're talking to the devil, right? So presumably you're standing up. It's a bit like Twister. Like, <laughs> do you know what <laughs> The hand, like if you if I was to stand up now I can't do because I'm holding my phone but if I was to stand up now and I put one hand on my head and one on the sole of my foot you know it's not the most straightforward it's it's sort of
0: ludicrous yeah it isn't it isn't the most straightforward and I hadn't actually physically thought about it before sometimes it says the devil bade her put it on head and foot and I was like is that the devil that's putting his hand on her head and on her foot so that yeah be- that might be more easy. I think this is like a writer's point of view. I'm like,
1: how would I describe this? Is he making them in this nonsense? I think this shows that it is nonsense. But is he making them stand? And if he's touching them, I can see him putting his hand on their head. But then is he sort of like, right, raise your foot? You know, I mean, that seems
0: nonsense. I think, I lying I think down. Whether or not, it's the devil doing it or the woman doing it. It's to signify that they're giving over their whole body. Whole That's- body, right. That's the idea that I have you know from my head to my toes I am renouncing my baptism and giving myself over that's kind of the narrative that I thought. I'd love
1: to know where that originally came from who was the first person to make that as their confession with that physical description?
0: Well I wonder how baptism used to happen did it happen in a different way then where religious baptisms rather than we think of it in the modern day as being done with water where they may be done by putting your hands on head that would be something we might want to to yeah to see whether or not it's just a recreation of the way people were baptized then rather than God being present the devil was present well if any listeners know please do get in touch yes about the
1: specifics of that yeah yeah Yeah, so who's our next women that we're going to remember?
0: So the next woman that we're going to remember is a woman who we have very little information about. Her name is Janet Barker and she came to trial on the 29th of December 1643. She is female, she was unmarried, she went to trial and she was executed. That's all the information we have on Janet Barker. The other person convicted as a witch that we'd like to talk about today was an Earl of Bothwell that was tried as a witch. Now, this is an early Earl of Bothwell that appears to have been in 1594, the Earl of Bothwell, who was male, unmarried, went to trial on an accusation of witchcraft. Now, the outcome of what happened to him is identified as not known, which I think is really weird because one thing that we do know about is Records were better kept for those that were higher up Mm. on a social scale. Unfortunately, we have an Earl of Bothwell in 1594 being accused of acts of witchcraft, but the outcome of that was not known. It appears, and I'm working back from dates, it appears that this is the, the fourth Earl of Bothwell, and that was one who immediately was before the Earl of Bothwell killed Mary Queen of Scots consort Darnley. So you'll remember that, well I remember from school when we talked about Mary Queen of Scots, the Earl of Bothwell was amongst the intrigue in relation to the life of Mary and I remember hearing all about the Earl of Bothwell in relation to the death of Darnley but I checked up the date of that Earl of Bothwell and it seems to be that he was Mary's Earl of Bothwell was the next in line as Earl of Bothwell after the one who was accused of witchcraft. So that was just an interesting thing, I thought, and it's strange that history does not appear to record what the outcome of that accusation was. I should say what I also found about in my investigations I had known a little about the Earl of Bothwell that was involved in Mary Queen of Scots' life, but what I didn't know and what I found out from that famous source of knowledge, Wikipedia, was a body that referred to as Boswell's mummy materialised in the Edinburgh Wax Museum on the Royal Mile and it was claimed that a body, a mummy, was brought to Scotland in 1858 and that this was the Earl of Boswell who had fled Scotland, having been involved in the life of Mary Queen of Scots. So it appears at least it might be folklore, it might not be true, but it appears in some way the Edinburgh Wax Museum considered that a body that was brought back was in fact the Earl of Bothwell's. No idea whether or not that's correct or not. Again, if anyone knows, it would be quite interesting. It's not strictly to do with witches, but it would be quite interesting to find out whether or not it is true that his body was brought back to Scotland, to the Edinburgh Wax Museum
1: on the Royal Mile. It made me think of the Lillia Sadie issue with the skull and so on, and, and the idea of people's bodies being fit for entertainment. Yes. Yeah.
0: It's, it's strange. It's really odd. Yeah, it seems to be an odd but human condition that if you found something like that, I, I mean, even famously the bloody Mackenzie, the Lord Advocate Mackenzie, who was about at the time of the witch trials that we've perhaps spoken about before, he was the gentleman who was involved in Scottish history when the Covenanters came to Scotland. And he was known as the Bloody Mackenzie because he was known to be very fierce, but he was also known to be a quiet critic of the witchcraft trials. He believed that a lot less people were witches than were actually being accused. And on occasion stepped in to stop witchcraft uh, trials happening. But in his life, after his death and when he died, he was buried in Greyfriars Bobby. In the early 90s, two young boys dug up where he was interred and had been found to be playing football with a skull, which was said to be the Bloody Mackenzie's. And they were prosecuted for that back in the early 90s. So that's
1: true. That is not just, uh, that's not well, just an urban myth. Two boys yeah. really
0: did do that. Yeah, Good Lord. That, that was something that happened uh, many years ago now. but. Yeah, it's strange some of these figures in history that are recurring do come back. Mm. And it also shows that when women were killed as witches and they were not only were they killed as strangled but were also burnt to get rid of any part of their body, that their story also disappeared because there was nothing to remember them by. No part of them or nothing that people could tangibly hold on to to recreate their history. So in some ways, I think having nothing to remember people by not even a headstone or a grave or a memorial is a terrible thing. But it does show you with Lilius's case, and also I suppose with the Bloody Mackenzie's case, that if you do have a memorial or yard buried, there's always a possibility that you won't remain that way. We're going to be talking more about memorials next week, aren't we? Yeah, hopefully, in next week's show, that'll be really, really interesting. So, as we've considered those people who were accused of witchcraft, we're now moving on, and we're absolutely delighted to be able to speak this week to Catherine McPhee from the Isle of Skye. And perhaps, Catherine, you can introduce yourself and tell us what you're all about. That's a big question. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, my name's Catherine McPhee and I'm a trainee archivist on the Isle of Skye, and grew up here. Got an interest, you could say, maybe a more of a connection to folklore. And I came across a case of a witch on the Sky. And have you been able to find out much in your researches about her? Yeah, it started off. It was, um, I was actually looking at court papers that are based in our Inverness archives, not in the Sky one. And I just saw this reference saying that Rory MacDonald's Sky for torturing and murdering Catherine McKinnon. And then I noticed on the side there was a small detail in pencil, just saying as a witch. And I've never come across that. So I just looked into it. So the details that I found out, quite amazing that we found out her name. So her name was Catherine McKinnon, And it has something on the paperwork, which is known as Aslaunia here, which is your surnames, which I had to get translated as well. So what I found out about Catherine McKinnon is that she is the daughter of Lachlan, who is the son of Donald the Swarvey or Donald Dark, which is could have another meaning to it as well. And it appears that in 1754, she was in the village of Cam's Cross on the south end of Skye, and she went begging to a man called Rudy McEwen. So he's referred to as Rudy and Rory at different times throughout the, um, the court records. There's so many extracts, I just don't know quite which one to read. So, yeah, this one here. So it says In the spring of 1747, an old woman called Catherine McKinnon, alias Lachlan Vichdahl, have come to the house of the said Rory MacDonald in the Isle of Skye. And pronounced upon that she was a witch, and that being concerned in poisoning some of his acquaintance, ordered her to be fast bound with ropes, and the soles of her feet to be placed before a great fire, in ordered to extort a confession from her, which was done accordingly. And the poor woman so miserably tortured that she lost some of her toes and feet, and died about fourteen days thereafter of the cruelty which had been exercised against her by the said Rory in his dwelling house. So that was the first note, and then I found another one later on in the papers when it mentions that after the treatment by Rory, that she left the house, she made a shift crawl to some house or houses in the neighbourhood where she stayed for some time. And she was taken to the house of a Donald Grant, who was a day labourer, in Dewsdale Bakes. So this is just kind of like the next little bit over in the township, where she languished in great pain for some days and died about 10 or 12 days thereafter. So that's what we know happened to Catherine. I haven't been able to find out much more on her. I'm going to work on her slonych once I can access the archives down at Armadale Castle.
0: Can I ask, what
2: Slornia? It's a Gaelic word for surname. Don't speak fluent Gaelic, but it's how you would kind of relay who you belong to. So she is Catherine, son of Lachlan, who is son of Donald. So it's how you can kind of do your family history orally. Um, and that's how she would have been known um, as well. So even though she's Catherine McKinnon, it will tell you who her ancestors are by her Slonia. That's mm-hmm. what I can work on next, is finding out who they were through maybe some old rental records and maybe get a bit more background to her because she's just described as an old beggar woman she's not described as anything else but having her name was quite amazing is she the only witch on sky the only witch i've got evidence of that somebody's been accused and then murdered for it every other story comes from folklore there's more of a appreciation maybe more of an understanding we kind of go with it I don't know, I was quite shocked actually when I found it because you kind of grow up hearing witch stories. And One of the first stories I remember getting told of a child was a witch story turning into a cat. But you don't find it negative. It's more, goes along with the Gallic other world or underworld as they sometimes call it. So yeah, that kind of connection with the fairies, witches, kelpies is all kind of ingrained in culture rather than something you would see people getting accused of.
1: So do you think that's why there weren't sort of more widespread
2: cases on Sky because there was a different cultural attitude towards the issue? Yeah, I think it's more runs parallel alongside the culture here than something really scary because people have more names that are connected to this kind of other realm, other world. And all the stories that you hear about them, you've got like poems. There's one written about a castle, which is down in the same area where the witch built the castle overnight by using a poem. And it was the castle where Skaha was. She was a big female warrior. So they were just seen as powerful women rather than scary.
0: I love that idea. So by the power of a poem and reciting a poem, a castle was built.
2: Yeah, it's a landscape castle. So it's down in the south end of the sky. And that's where Cahulin, who's the Irish warrior, came over to kind of defeat her. She was seen. She's, yeah, she's in, um, I not remember the name of that book. Is it Mary Kidd?
0: Yes, uh, we spoke earlier to Mary. Yeah. If, if that is in her book, fantastic. I'll go and give she that. She might
2: be the first woman in there. Yeah. So that's the castle. Her castle was built by witch overnight with a poem. There's lots of relationships like that. And for me, just having more of an understanding to second sight and it kind of just being accepted, nobody seems to kind of go, oh, don't go near that. It's even growing up, I remember family members talking about going around somebody's house because they had second sight or they would read tea leaves. And, but also they're very religious as well.
0: Yeah, that's my kind of family background as well, that my gran and all her sisters, they're Irish were all catholic but they interwove into their religion the superstitions and tea leaves was definitely one of them that was definitely done on occasion i had such a boring
1: family there was like and half my family are irish and the other half are scottish but i
0: think protestants
1: it's just much less interesting you know (laughs) there's nothing nothing magical about that sorry that's just my very ignorant poorly researched view but there was there was no chat like that in my family it's really boring.
2: There was a guy in, um, on my father's side of the family that was known as the Wizard of the North, or Ian Doo. so Black Ian. His brother was a really famous Gallic poet, and so was his father, but he was um, accused of all sorts of kind of dark magic. It sounds more like he might have been a bit more like a kind of street magician, but yeah, there's actual records of him doing stuff. There's a few written accounts of playing tricks on people. He wow. was Ian Doo because he was into dark arts.
1: But it does make sense, though, if you culturally, you have, you know, the magical side and didn't see it as a negative, that they would be less inclined to say, right, this is the way that we're going to get this person. We're going to accuse them of being in league with the devil. Does the devil feature
2: in stories on Sky? No, nothing like that. I think some of the stories, so if you look at things like that witch story I was told when I was reading, it's one of the first stories I remember getting told. Within it, the, these three cats appear and they turn into old women in the village and the child recognises them. That's probably the darkest one I've heard in connection to which, witch, but there's been nothing with devils. You get kelpies, fairies, there's nothing, yeah, nothing like that at all. I suppose it wasn't seen as a kind of good and evil. It was probably seen as right. just a kind of another world. So when we spoke briefly yesterday, I was saying about that. Within the Highlands, this kind of understanding of seers and acceptance of it. I mentioned the brand seer to use, the Cunya Mackenzie. So he had the hagstone that was given to him and he was a seer and the hagstone's got a hole in the middle. and That's how you would see through to the other world and predict the future.
0: So literally, if I just get this right, literally a stone through which either nature had carved or someone had carved a hole and you would yeah. physically, the person would physically put it up to their eye and be able to see what happened in the future.
2: Yeah, the hagstone. So yeah, the story with that one is that his mother was at a graveyard. He was born on the west of Lewis. His mother was at a graveyard when the ghosts were able to leave, and she noticed one of the graves were empty, and she held a stick over it until that person came back, and it was our Norwegian princess, and she said, you need to give me something to get back into your grave, and she gave her son, Kenneth, the gift of being second sight and being able to see, and he had the stone that allowed him to do it. There's all sorts of tales about him. He's really big in the Highland folklore scene. And he himself, Lady Seaforth, had him put in a spiked tar full of barrel and set on fire.
0: So he, he did not come to a happy end either. No. That's so awful. Yeah. Not everybody was lovely. No. <laughs> Speaking of people that weren't lovely, Catherine McKinnon obviously was not a witch. She was a poor woman who unfortunately happened to knock upon the door of Ruri. Do we know anything more about him? Do we know whether or not he was convicted of her murder?
2: He wasn't convicted. As far as I'm aware, he hasn't been convicted. I can't find any more court records in Everness. I've had a search on the National Records of Scotland catalogue online, but I stopped looking for him because I had kind of felt I had too much. I really wanted to find out more about Catherine. He comes from quite a prominent family on Sky. He's a man of wealth, man of power. He is the last, he was one of the last tax men in Sky down in Camus Cross for the McDonald family, so two of the biggest. Clans on Skye are the Macdonalds and the Macleods, the Macdonalds to the south end of the island. He, at the time, was actually in jail in Fort William when this accusation was put against him, and that was in 1754, and he was in jail for treason, for sending treasonous letters. He'd also been accused of wearing Highland dress, so after the 45. Um, there's other charges against him for having weapons, and there's other stories on Skye about him just being you know, horrible, just absolute barbarous to people. And he had just had that power in the village. The taxmen were basically holding the lease on that area and that ground. So he was holding that off the McDonald's um, and running it. And he'd charge rents or get money from the estate, from crops that were growing. So she obviously went to his house looking for help because he was in charge. And this is what he did to her.
0: So she went looking for some sort of care or help as a beggar. And we understand in those days if people asked for your help when they had nothing that it was appropriate to try and help them in some way I mean obviously that's the good thing to do but I understand that there was a an understanding that if you asked for help then it shouldn't be refused.
2: Yeah certainly and and, I mean that's quite early records for us for the 1740s certainly later on you would see villages would have instead of having a poor house we'd have what would be known as a pauper's house so you might have one house in the community where people who needed a bit of help or were widows or infirm they would live there and the community would just look after them there was no question asked it was just what happened and then later on you had things coming in from the state essentially the parish and from the church uh, but at that time that sounds just he was he was affluent he was a man of power he was in the MacDonald family he was the cadet of those he was notorious you know he was involved in cattle raiding and just generally known as being quite cruel in the village um, from different accounts and yeah lots of court records relating to him he's always in trouble
0: I would just really like to have known whether or not he was convicted of murder, and murder being a capital offence, if he was then executed for it. I wonder if there's any records in, held centrally. I might try and give that a look myself.
2: So he was born around 1716. Um, I don't think, he doesn't pass away until about 1780s.
0: Okay, uh, okay. so it wouldn't be then because if they would, had executed him, they would have yeah. done it right after he'd been yep. found guilty. So yep. it looks like either he wasn't convicted
2: or if he was convicted, he got some other sort of sentence. Yeah. And there is, you kind of think he's kind of, you know, maybe seen as a bit of a colourful character with, you know, for wearing the Highland dress and brandishing weapons and, you know, stopping cattle raidings, and, you know, holding up the clan and looking after the family. But it sounds like he was just brutal. Um, yep. One of the other later accounts um, with it as well, it's accusing him of forcing his servants there was a, this is in the August 1754, when they're obviously still trying to get this charge against him. Because he's in Fort William, and they're trying to get him up to court in Burness for these charges. Um, and they keep adding and adding little bits extra in, so they're obviously interviewing people in the village. In this one, it says that he gets his servants, or other people who happen to be in the house at the time, to tie her hands behind her back and hold the soles of her feet to a fire in the kitchen, threatening to do them mischief or harm in case they did not obey him whereupon, in order to avert the mischief which they were threatened, they did in obedience his commands and tied the said Kath McKinnon's hands behind her back and burnt her feet for some time. So a powerful guy.
0: Sorry, and obviously using threats of violence against others to do his bidding, I mean, it must have actually been horrific for them too.
2: Yeah, the house is still there. What's been really amazing about this is the help I've had from that community. Um, the Cameras Cross area, I've reached out to a couple of people down there around things like the Slonia, some Gaelic phrases, The village that was first mentioned, I have no idea what it was. It's an older name for part of the township. That's been interesting, speaking to people. And one of my friend's dad sent me a picture of the house from around maybe 1910, which I'll send on to you. Is it actually, yeah, it looks spooky. Like just because it's old, CPO. Yeah, the house is still there. I actually, one of my friends lived in it for a while, which is so loads of people are interested. They want to hear because it's so unusual to have something like this here.
0: That would be fantastic. What we would love to do as well is uh, be able to share it on social media so that people, when they're hearing about the story, were able to have the visual of that house as well.
1: Do people speak about it? I mean, is it, or is this something that you hadn't heard of before and you just came across it and you'd had no notion of it? Not heard of it at all. So strange when it's just the one, the one story. You know, but, well, I'm I'm saying obviously, I'm guessing that seeing he was known as, you know, a horrible and brutal, sadistic man, that nobody maybe believed at all that the woman had done anything other than just be in the wrong place at the wrong time. So it mm. wasn't viewed in the same way as it might have been viewed here with some of the so-called and you know, executed witches, that people did believe they were witches. Maybe
2: on Sky people just thought, it's that bastard at it again. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, accusing her of poisoning his men or acquaintances. And there's other references to him causing, I think it says like an efficacy of blood, to people, So there's a kind of, re- there's a really weird reference to him being a place called Fura where people went smuggling. And it sounds like he, whatever he did to the people down there, they died a couple of weeks later. Right. but I couldn't figure out, just it's kind of a bit patchy between the records. Was it those people he was accusing her of poisoning? Or was it people who there? his
1: with- own back that he'd, he'd also- injured them in some way and they just died slowly over time. And to, to say that it wasn't him, he blamed it on her witchcraft.
2: Yeah, it's really hard. You're kind of piecing it together or thinking, am I looking too much into that? Because he was so violent, you just don't know.
0: Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was kind of thinking, well, if she just turned up on his door, how would she have poisoned his men? Because he wouldn't have known, but that would make sense. If he thought he was going to take the rap for a poisoning, then to just blame it on some poor old woman who happened to go past.
2: Yeah, mm. they would have all known each other just similar today, everyone would have known each other. Because even with this, if I, as I've reached out to people, they've said, oh, you should ask so-and-so up in that house, or they live there, or they'll be interested to know. They might, and then people are going, why don't we know about this? Why hasn't anyone picked this up? And then there is that, you know, he is related to the high society, he's of wealth and power. So, and then again, that whole idea of wearing tart in the Highland dress in the 45, people want to romanticise it. I know you can see your shoulder. <laughs> that kind of romanticising, that image of somebody fighting against standing up but behind it yeah. And it doesn't, nice suit the, doesn't suit the overall
1: political image of him to then go around killing old ladies
3: aye
0: yeah. well Catherine that is absolutely fascinating thanks so much for getting in contact with us and telling us about Catherine because otherwise we would never have heard and, and I hope that if and when you find out more you'll be able to tell us more about her
2: yeah, thank, you for, thank you for everything you're doing it's really interesting listening to all the podcasts Oh, it's
1: just great because there's there's so much that I had absolutely no clue about whatsoever. So when people like yourself get in touch, I mean, we always say we're not experts at all. What's been really nice about this is that loads of other people that are experts in different areas have reached out and said, look, here's this story, or you maybe want to
2: think about this. It's just so fascinating, gives a more complete picture. Yeah, because in the first email I sent you with the details from the Kirk sessions, I was one of my colleagues in Inverness, and that was later again. It was still these older practices, you know, burying animals under the threshold. Can you tell us about the story? Because there was a story of somebody who later carried out what might
0: be, have been considered a sort of act of witchcraft, and luckily they were dealt with in very different ways from people yeah. accused of witchcraft elsewhere.
2: So, this is over in, these are from the Galsby Kirk session minutes, and the entry reads It's reported to the session that Elspeth Bowie, to cure the child, digged a hole in the ground and put therein a living cock in the manner of some sacrifice. Um, the session, deciding that this amounted to gross idolatry or sacrifice to the devil, found her guilty and instructed her to be here before the congregation to confess and be reprehended for her uncommon crime. And then an entry several months later it reveals that Elspeth was sharply rebuked and seriously exonerated to repentance, as well as being ordered to stand in a sackcloth for five days. So, strangely, although
0: she was convicted or, or held to be guilty of something, it wasn't being convicted in the secular court under the Witchcraft Act. It yep. was being convicted before the, the church, effectively. Yeah,
2: before the church. And again, it's, she's doing something to try and save her child that's having convulsions. So, you know, she's just doing everything she can, and an older practice might work for her. Yeah, there's a few um, that pop out like that now and again, and there's a few in an a couple of older books on Sky where they talk about practices that sound a bit like Reiki, like 1690s it's the only way you can explain them in modern terms they kind of describe a guy using stones and metal hovering over a body in poetry um, to heal somebody so yeah, you kind of get these wee follies throughout everything That's so interesting, we always think of
0: Reiki as certainly not a Scottish art that's for sure, but that would be absolutely amazing to find out that it was being done in Scotland all that time back This week we have a second fantastic guest for you, the talented writer and director Alex Mayer. In this clip from our conversation, Alex starts by introducing herself and we go on to chat about her latest project, which I know listeners to the podcast are going to be very interested in. After Alex, Zoe and I will be back with news in Germany where work is underway to pardon women accused, tried and executed as witches.
3: I'm Alex Marr and I'm a writer and director and I came across the story of Janet Horne just by chance really and I was really taken with the fact that just 9 years after she was executed for witchcraft the witchcraft acts in Scotland were repealed and the terrible irony of that for her and what happened to her but also part of the story that really caught my eye was that her daughter who was accused along with her because she had what we would now call limb difference. So um, she had a condition which affected her hands and feet. She'd been accused along with her mother because her neighbours said that her mother had had her shod by the devil and then used her to ride around the countryside to carry out her witchcraft. And her daughter escaped the, the burning. And there's not really a written record of what happened to Janet Horne or to her daughter. But we have an oral history that was recorded about 100 years after her death. And it is thought and said in some records that we have that her daughter continued to live in the area, which I was shocked by because I thought, well, if she'd escaped the burning, then was she not made the subject of the hunt. And I've wondered a lot about her daughter and what happened to her after the event, and also the ordeal that she went through and having to know what became of her mother. I was taken by the idea of difference, and how women could be singled out for their difference. And not just women, men as well. And how that translates to discrimination against difference in today's world. So the cunning is, it's so titled after the term cunning folk, which was a term used to describe wise women or wise men and people who used herbal medicines and were thought to have knowledge and could use powers for, for good. And I guess it was sort of a more positive slant on what could be called witchcraft. And if it was called witchcraft, it would be much more deadly. And because there was a firm distinction between cunning folk and witchcraft, in which witches were dangerous and the cunning folk were not, and they were not in league with the devil. I, I thought about that fine line and the differences that those women were picked out for and the cunning is a film that reimagines what happened to many of the victims of the witch trials and tries to reclaim for them some dignity and some license and some agency in in taking control of the situation in a way that they unfortunately weren't able to do when a neighbor or somebody nearby pointed the finger at them you know such such small things could could lead to a person being executed. There are a number of different accounts about what happened with Janet Horne and what she said and what she did, and I expect many of them are speculation, but she was thought to be suffering with dementia at the time, and confused about many things, and a number of accounts do say that when she arrived beside the fire, that she smiled and warmed her hands on the fire, not really realising what was happening and some accounts say that she even said oh what a bonnie fire and it breaks my heart to think that a woman who is suffering with dementia could be treated in such a way and and it's also i've read that the sheriff david ross who pushed through the trial really quickly and didn't actually have the legal authority to conduct the trial but he found both of the women guilty and he sentenced them to be executed the following day so they didn't even have you know much time to sort of address the fact that it wasn't a legal trial, and you'll know much more about that than I do, um, <laughs> Claire. Um, yeah, so, so The Cunning is a film that tries to reimagine that history and um, reclaim some of the dignity and license for those women.
0: That sounds absolutely, I mean, it sounds absolutely great. It sounds exactly what we want with Witches of Scotland. We want to. Remember these women, memorialise them, their stories, what happened to them, and to, as you say, just give them back some dignity. And um, it sounds like an absolute great project that you're doing. Tell us where you are in the project, what's happening at the moment, is there any way that we can help you at Witches of Scotland?
3: Ah, yes, so kind. So, um, yes, we are in a really fantastic place. We have some excellent, excellent people on board to help us tell our story the award-winning British actress, Gemma Arterton, is on board to play one of our leading characters. We have a fantastic young actress called Bethany Asher, who will play another of the leading characters. And Scott's musician extraordinaire, Erland Cooper, is on board to create a really beautiful soundtrack for us. We have attracted some investment from some very generous supporters of the project. And we're now in the process of striving towards a final £6,000 portion of the budget that we need to add to the funds we've raised so far in order to push it over the line and green light the project. And our Kickstarter is now in the final 10 days and we are moving slowly but surely, we hope, towards our £6,000 target. It's an all or nothing platform. So if we don't reach that target, by the cutoff date, unfortunately, we won't receive any of the funding. So we have our fingers and our toes crossed and we are hugely grateful to everybody who's supported us so far. If anybody who is listening would like to support, we are welcoming any donation that people feel they can make at this time. So every penny counts and every follow and share counts for us on Twitter and Instagram. We are at Cunning Film on both of those platforms. We hope that, fingers crossed, if we reach that target, we can put the film into production early next year and hopefully
0: complete it by the middle of the year. If you get the money then, that means the project can get started immediately. Is that the idea? So as you know,
3: we're living in um, complicated times with COVID-19 and actually film production is going ahead at the moment, Um, but uh, we will need to take all the necessary steps to make sure that we're a COVID secure set. We'll need to check on timings and dates with our actors so that we can get everybody in the right place at the right time. But certainly by spring, spring 2021, we would love to um, have the film in production pretty quickly after we reach our target
1: do you have your team and everything already sort of picked? You know, if you, when you get your funding, do you know who it is that you want to act in it and, and all the rest of it, the production team?
3: Yes. So the cast is largely already in place. We have um, Gemma Arterton and Bethany Asher as our lead characters. And we will be making some announcements shortly about other actors who are joining the cast. We have a number of our production team and crew in place But we'll still be um, looking to appoint further key members of the team in the coming months. So it's exciting times ahead for us on that front.
0: I'll bet, yeah. We really hope at Witches of Scotland that we can assist you in some way and what we will do is we'll give a a shout out to our members not only on our podcast here but also on social media and see whether or not we've got 10 days left and it's a difficult time of year and it's a difficult year at a difficult time of year but if there's anyone who is in a position to assist it would be great to do so and see the story of Scotland's last witch Janet Horne brought to life and her tale told so We really, really hope that you get there and we really look forward to seeing it when when you do.
3: Thank you so much. That's really kind, um, Claire and Zoe. And um, I should just stress that the film, whilst being inspired by Janet Horne and her daughter, It doesn't feature Janet Horne and her daughter. It tells a reimagined story. So it's inspired by their story. It takes the themes of being singled out for difference and these arbitrary accusations and the torture and the threat and the fatal nature of those kinds of accusations. And it uses that to inspire the story.
0: So really what you're doing is you're telling, inspired by Janet Horne, you're telling the story of many, many women in that situation.
3: Yes, absolutely. And it's sort of something that I've always enjoyed in Quentin Tarantino films where he um, does a little bit of revisionist history where he takes a very well-known part of history and a film called *Inglorious Bastards and in a film called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a very key part of history that's very well known, gets reimagined and retold and flipped on its head slightly. I don't want to give away any spoilers for the film, but it's, yeah, it's, it's taking particularly Janet Horne's story, but also, as you say, the story of many, many women and men who were um, subject to these, you know, awful, awful accusations and awful fates as a result of the accusations.
0: Well, we really hope you get there and we really hope to see your movie in 2021. That's something to look forward to. Thank you, Alex, very much for coming to speak to us today. Thank you so much.
1: Remember, as Alex said, every sort of penny and pound counts and also all the sharing is really, really helpful. So even if you yourself don't have any cash hanging about just now, you can share on all the different platforms too so it reaches a bigger audience. Thanks so much, Alex.
3: Thank you. And thank you so much for what you're doing. I think your campaign is absolutely incredible. And I would encourage everybody to support and share your campaign too. So thank you.
0: You have perhaps heard us in the past say that we were going to be speaking to you about someone who's also been trying to get pardons. The man is Hartmut Hegeler, and we'll come to hear about him personally in a, a bit more detail. But what happened was as I was talking to various different people about trying to get a pardon, I was being asked whether or not around the world other people had been pardoned. So I did a bit of research to see whether or not in other countries he'd been pardoned. And obviously I came up with Salem and found all about the pardons there. And it would be great, actually, if we could get someone from Salem to come and speak to us about the pardoning process. So anyone in the US who knows about that, please do get in contact with us because it would be really interesting to chat to them about it. But I also, in my researches, found Mr Hartmut Hegeler. And he is a pastor from Germany who spends his retirement going about Germany up and down the length of the country, trying to persuade, I suppose, local authorities or local areas to pardon women who were convicted of witchcraft. And what's so interesting about his website that I looked at is he, in fact, has named his website after Anton Praetorius. And Anton Praetorius was a pastor who, at the time of the witch trials, was protesting against them. He thought that a lot of the people, or maybe all the people, who were being accused and prosecuted as witches were not, in fact, witches. So, Anton Praetorius, at the time of the witchcraft trials, was a pastor who was trying to persuade people not to kill women as witches. And, in fact, having looked him up, Anton Praetorius was a German Calvinist pastor who spoke out against the persecution of witches. I have managed to find a part, and again this is from Wikipedia, you can go to if you look up Anton Praetorius. I have found a part where it says in fifteen ninety seven Praetorius was appointed as a pastor and he had to witness the torture of four women accused of witchcraft. According to the records, Reverend Praetorius was so upset about the torture of the accused woman that he pressed for it to stop in the trial against the last surviving woman. His protest about the torture is actually recorded. They actually have the records of that, and what is said is the following quote quote As the pastor has violently protested against the torture of the woman, it has therefore been stopped this time. As a consequence of that protest, Anton Praetorius was dismissed. Throughout his life he continued to protest against torture and persecution and prosecution of witches, and he wrote books about why women should not be tortured as witches and he is someone to be remembered at the time who was totally out of step with the prevailing views who said stop this these women are not witches and as was the case totally lost his place in society. Wikipedia records Praetorius was one of the first to describe the terrible situation of the prisoners and to protest against the torture He publicly objected to the prevailing attitudes of the church. And then there's brackets saying, a view held by Roman Catholics as well as Protestants, such as Martin Luther and John Calvin, on the torture and burning of witches. So it's interesting that when our modern day pastor, Helmut Hegeler decided to try and get a pardon for these women, he did so flagging up the name of Praetorius, And on our social medias, on Instagram, on Twitter, etc., we'll provide you links to his website. I should say that Hartmut very kindly has answered some of our questions for us in order that we can read them out so we get to find out about Hartmut Heckler and we get to find out about his work. What he has also done is he has photographs of a number of the sites where women have been given pardons and he's provided us with photographs of these which he's allowed us to use so again we'll post those in social media so you can see not only the German memorials that he's given us pictures of but he's also sent us some lovely pictures of the Finnmark memorial in Norway that we've spoken about before so we'll be able to post them too and as I say it's very kind of him to have granted his permission for us to do that. So I wonder, without further ado, if we can actually go to the written interview that he has provided us. Do you want me to tell you a little bit about Hartmut Hegler first?
1: Yes, that would, be, that would be great. Thanks, Zoe. Okay, so Hartmut Hegler, Herr Hegler, was born in 1946. He was a retired Protestant pastor in the church district of Una in the Church of Westphalia, Germany. And between 1982 to 2009, he was teaching the subject of religion in a vocational training college in Una, Questions of his students about the persecution of witches were the impulse for his studies on this subject, which led to him writing books and then holding lectures. He is fighting, still now, for the exoneration of the victims of the witchcraft trials, that they should be given back their dignity as human beings and as Christians, and that there should be places of remembrance to give witness to their fates. There have been many reports in the media about his activities and we'll put links to that for you on the website as well so you can read up on what Herr Hegler has actually done.
0: We asked Herr Hegler when he started his campaign.
1: Yes, so he first started his campaign in 2010 and he learned about the efforts of women in the German towns of Eschbeg and Hofheim in the state of Hesse. After having made efforts for many years, these women finally succeeded in convincing the council of their respective towns to exonerate the victims of the witchcraft trials and to inaugurate a memorial. Since then, Herr Hegler has been propagating this issue in his books and his speeches. We asked him why he started his campaign. So Herr Hegler studied the old protocols of the court hearings and learned that in spite of heavy torture, Many of the accused women and men in the witchcraft trials actually denied their guilt, but on the contrary confessed their faith in God right up until death. Hegler said, I was shocked that they were tortured and executed in the name of my Jesus, the centre of my Christian belief, as Jesus himself was tortured and executed even though he was innocent. Thus Hegler came to the decision that the martyrdom of the victims of the witchcraft trials should finally be acknowledged by the public and by the churches. Those sentenced people should no longer be regarded as sinners but as saints. And Hegler pleaded that especially the churches should raise their voices in the issue of these innocently executed people.
0: We asked Herr Hegler, what are the aims of his campaign? Well, Hegler and a
1: group of other citizens demand that 25,000 women, men, and children who were executed as alleged witches in Germany should be given back their dignity as human beings and as Christians. For modern science, it is evident that the convicted people could not have committed the crimes that they were accused of. The verdicts of the courts never have been annihilated or revised, nor the victims rehabilitated. It is long overdue to exonerate them, at least on moral grounds. It seems nearly impossible to discuss the matter on judicial grounds, as, for example, many historical documents have been lost. It's slightly different to in Scotland, isn't it, Claire?
0: Yes, I mean, what we're asking for is a pardon for everyone that was convicted under the Act. So we're simply asking for a broad brush approach to be taken in that regard. If everyone is, who was convicted under that act is acquitted, then everyone who was affected by it will be acquitted. And we're also asking for an apology for everyone who was accused under that act, because many people died before they ever got to a trial, they never got to conviction. So that's why it's important we're asking not only for a pardon, but also for an apology. We also asked Herr Hegler, how does he promote his campaign? He answered
1: that it's mainly by telephone and by writing letters and emails to mayors and councils of towns, to pastors and elders of their respective churches. He also basically goes on lots of lecture tours in various different places and designed a poster exhibition which has toured in many towns as well, raising awareness and educating people about it. He also encourages church services to be held in memory of the victims of the witchcraft trials, And with a group of other people who sympathize with the issue, Herr Hegler took part in large church assemblies, Kirchentag, of the Protestant and Catholic churches presenting these issues, and conducted a church service in memory of the victims of the witchcraft trials during the ecumenical Kirchentag in Munich in 2010. And we'll put links to all these different things because there's quite a lot of
0: links here that you might be interested in. Yeah, absolutely. Some fascinating stuff. We asked Herr Hegler, when he started his campaign, did people agree with him immediately or was there resistance and objection to it?
1: He said that actually there have been lots of encouragement and approval in many towns. However, there has been resistance and objection. Some towns fear disadvantages for tourism if this dark page of the history of the town is Covered and talked about in other areas. Politicians argue that there are more important topics to deal with, and some church leaders feared there'd be a negative image consequence for the church. We asked how successful has the campaign been? Herr Hegler said that many city councils and congregations expressed their deep regret and resolved upon exoneration for the victims of the witchcraft trials of their town, and themselves initiated memorials for the victims of those who were persecuted as witches. In other towns, there's been no response at all or fierce rejection.
0: We said when we were talking about the memorials that we understood that lots of memorials had been set up through his great work in Germany. And we asked, what are the memorials like? Are they statues? Are they pieces
1: of art? He said that they've been designed very differently in each town, I suppose, depending on what each town wanted to do. Herr Hegler's posted collections of more than 100 respective photos from Germany and Europe and them in the USA on his website for you to
0: have a look at yourself. We asked Herr Hegler, why do you think it's important that we continue to remember these people that were convicted as witches? Herr Hegler said that we must
1: recognise injustice in the past, otherwise we will not recognise injustice when we encounter it today.
0: We asked, why deal with the rehabilitation of victims of historic witchcraft
1: trials? Interestingly, Herr Hegler said that there are many parallels of persecution of witches nowadays as well. So there's the search for scapegoats, which can be known as otherization, that's been going on all over the history of mankind. This happens in society and in everyday life as well, in the current days. There's also demonization and talking badly about people with examples of violence and mobbing, and in fact, even torture in some countries. There's also the persecution of witches taking place in today's contemporary world, For example, there are cases that we'll eventually look into in more detail. He says as well, Herr Hegler, that a re-evaluation of the history books is long overdue, that many of the accused in the witchcraft trials denied their guilt in spite of their heavy torture, but confessed their faith in God until death. Their martyrdom should finally be acknowledged by the public and by the churches. Those sentences should no longer be regarded as sinners but as saints. And especially the churches should raise their voice on the issue of innocently executed people As the parallels are there with the story of Jesus being tortured and executed, even though he was innocent. Mr. Herr Hagler says, their suffering has not been in vain if it is remembered by us today in order to fight for more justice and human rights.
0: That's a really, really powerful explanation of why it's so important, isn't it?
1: Yeah, hugely.
0: And I think a lot of that
1: is parallel to us. I mean, we maybe don't have the same level of interest in the Christian side of it, particularly. But we are definitely very interested in the side that people are not viewed as being, you know, sinners, in one way of phrasing it, and that people are seen as being people that were wrongly convicted and executed. Yeah, they were just folk. Exactly,
0: exactly. So thank you very much to Herr Hegler for giving us that interview and also providing us links to all that we've spoken about. As I say, we will be putting that up on the social media so that you can go and look all the sites that he's linked to. I think of a special interest are the links to the memorialisation and the photographs to all the memorials set up are fantastic, so hopefully that will give you something interesting to browse.
1: Thanks very much for joining us for episode 12 of the Witches of Scotland podcast. Please do share and rate, tell people about it, so that the more people we have following the campaign and supporting it, the greater a chance we have of success. Is that us finished this week's podcast, Zoe? I think so. We just need to do the, the thing. Bye. Bye.
0: If you'd like to learn more about the Witches of Scotland, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for our mailing list at www.witchesofscotland.com to keep updated with the campaign. On that site, you'll be able to find how to link with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.